The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I am the host of the podcast and director of advancement and admissions here at the seminary. In addition to my role here, I'm also pastor of Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the PCA, and it is my delight to welcome into the studio today one of my co-presbyters in Calvary Presbytery, Dr. Robert Cathcart. Dr. Cathcart, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach, for inviting me, and I want to say congratulations to you on your recent ordination, and praise the Lord, and look forward to working with you at Calvary. Thank you so much. Dr. Cathcart is pastor of Friendship Presbyterian Church down in Lawrence, South Carolina. He's been serving there since 2001, 20 years. Yes, that's correct. Can you believe it? <laughs> it, 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 it yes and no. It, it seems like we, we got there yesterday, but at the same time, it's it seems like we've been there a long time. So, <laughs> Uh, and actually, we're in Hickory Tavern, which is yes, make that that's slight, true. It's slight outside of Lawrence. Yeah. yeah, outside of Lawrence, it's been a wonderful ministry, a great place to serve the Lord. Praise the Lord, uh, Dr. Cathcart. In addition to his local congregational um, uh, service, there is also recording clerk in Calvary Presbytery, serving alongside of the inimitable Melton Duncan, who is our stated clerk for the Presbytery. He famously introduced himself as a quote. Long-time listener and first-time caller, end quote, on the floor of uh, this past General Assembly when he rose to the mic. And it is that assembly which we are concerned to speak about today as part of our denominational debrief segment. Uh, But before I introduce the assembly, I do want to say a couple more things about Dr. Cathcart and make him blush, though you can't see that. He holds degrees from the University of South Carolina, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, and Erskine Seminary's Institute of Reformed Worship, where you studied under Hughes Oliphant Old, correct? That is correct. Yes. He and his wife have four children, of whom they are very proud, and it is a delight just to get to know his family, both here in the presbytery, but also by social media, since we are Facebook friends. That <laughs> might be your that might be your greatest accolade there. There you go. Uh, Today, we'll be talking about the 48th General Assembly of the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. It ran from June 28th to July 2nd of this year, so it was a bit later in the calendar year than it usually is, and it was hosted in St. Louis, Missouri at the America's Convention Center Complex. Missouri Presbytery, I got to say this, did a wonderful job hosting the assembly. I was very thankful for their leadership. I, I actually went up to Tim LaCroix on the exhibit hall floor when he was passing the GPTS booth, and I and I said, uh, Pastor LaCroix, thank you so much for your service to the assembly and to the denomination in hosting, and um, he accepted my, my thanks and my gratitude. So, Dr. Cathcart, as we think about the assembly, how did you prepare for this year, and, and did you serve on any denominational committees leading up to the assembly itself? As I try to do every year, I get familiar with the various overtures that are coming up and sort of the big issues of the day. I try to read up on those as much as possible. Uh, I also serve on the Committee of Constitutional Business as an alternate, so that's a really great opportunity to get to know the overtures a little bit better. And uh, so that that was a good good experience this year. And um, also, I try to to I know Fred Greco publishes a nice little cheat sheet on the different overtures, so I try to get familiar with that as well and have conversations with folks in our presbytery and other other presbyteries, and those kinds of th- conversations happen. Some people would call here and there and just ask my opinion on things. And, th- and so just trying to, to do that both from, uh, you know, as, as they come, as the overtures come through the, the presbyteries and are posted, 
and then just trying to have those good organic conversations with other presbyters. So that's probably the main way. The beautiful thing about the age of electronic communication, and there are many non-beautiful things <laughs> about <laughs> the sure. age of electronic communication, uh, but one of the good things is the speed at which this news can travel. I mean, as soon as these things are posted online, Brad Isbell or somebody posts them up to Twitter and, and makes a remark on them, and then they just circulate around to everybody, usually within 12 hours. Right. Uh, whereas before, these kinds of correspondences would take weeks to circulate uh, around the country or around a denomination. Dr. Cathcart, the stated clerk's office always gives a report at these assemblies um, on um, on the statistics of the denomination, and admittedly, they are somewhat incomplete. I think one year, Dr. Taylor noted that about 60% of our congregations that are on the books actually report their statistics. And so these aren't really all that accurate, but um, they do give us an idea, generally speaking, of how large the denomination is and our growth patterns and trends. And today, the PCA consists of, or at least back in June, the PCA consists of 1,580 churches. That's a growth of 13 with 348 mission churches. So um, that, that number did not change from year to year, but the overall number went up. Uh, our membership count is estimated at around 383,338 members, and that is a conservative estimate since, again, most, uh, really uh, many churches are not reporting at all. But one of the remarkable numbers was how many men came to the assembly as commissioners. How many uh, were at GA this year as voting commissioners? Right. It was a record number this year, which actually gives us even more props to Missouri Presbytery for handling all of that. But uh, 2,114 uh, in attendance. So that, that was a tremendous number. One of the big discussions over the past few years has been the, the, um, the ratio of teaching elders to ruling elders. So how many of that 2,114 uh, were teaching elders and how many were ruling elders? Yeah, 1,499 teaching elders and 615 ruling elders. And that's, that's pretty, pretty significant, uh, representing about 967 churches from 86 of our 88 presbyteries. That is remarkable. I'm, I'm surprised that two presbyteries didn't have a single man present, although right. it, that, that may have been um, our Canadian presbyteries with travel restrictions. So that M- might that, have been. That might, might yeah, actually doesn't, that doesn't surprise me now that I think about it that way. But 967 churches out of 1,580 churches were represented. So even with... Um, even with the fact that we have record numbers of men there and a record number of churches represented, um, it still is far from a comprehensive picture of the denomination. But I think it is this past year was much more representative than in previous years. And I'm not putting words in Dr. Cathcart's mouth at all. This is Zach talking. I think it was a much more conservative and, and confessionally minded, if I could put it that way, um, assembly than in previous years. So just as it's more representative, it's also more conservative. That's an encouraging, um, an encouraging reality to, uh, to observe, if I'm correct about that. But moving on, I don't want to editorialize too much over statistics. <laughs> Last General Assembly, um, GA 47, which was uh, down in, that was in Dallas, or was that in Atlanta? Where was it? The last one was in Dallas. Yeah, it was in Dallas. Yeah, that's right. It was in Dallas, Texas, because we were coming home on Friday when business was still going on. Yes. The assembly elected ruling elder Howie Donahoe, 
of Pacific Northwest Presbytery, and he handled himself very well as moderator down in Dallas. Who served as moderator this year? Who was the teaching elder that they teed up? Sure. It was our retiring stated clerk, uh, Dr. Roy Taylor, who did a fantastic job. And we're, we can say we're very proud to say that he's now part of Calvary Presbytery. So. Yes, he is. He was, at the time, he was still in uh, Georgia Foothills. Right. But now he's transferred into Calvary since he's moved uh, into our bounds. Uh, though he's still serving full-time, I believe his call is technically out of bounds, maybe, because it's, right. it's, with the, um, it's with the administrative committee, which is based out in, in Lawrenceville, which is still in Georgia Foothills. That's correct. But he's, uh, he's credentialed now in Calvary. All right, moving into the business. Can you give us a brief overview of what was covered by this GA? Hmm. Well, I, I suppose you just kind of want to think through how, how the schedule works. And the first night we have a, a worship service, and then our stated clerk gave his report, and our new stated clerk is uh, was elected this time, uh, uh, Dr. Brian Chapel, and he delivered the stated clerk's address after uh, after that um, election of the moderator. Following there is a dessert fellowship in in the assembly hall, which is uh, exhibit hall, which is a nice uh, opportunity for everyone to get together and. I remember having lots of long conversations uh, deep into the night there, which was great. Uh, one of the blessings of General Assembly is not only the business, but also the fellowship and the food and all the fun that we have uh, getting together and just enjoying the connectionalism that we celebrate when we come together for General Assembly. Uh, it's always a great opportunity to connect with old friends and to meet new friends and to discuss the business in the halls, uh, which is kind of kind of good as well. Um, uh, all that is very rich to me, um, and a reason that I love coming. Uh, the next morning, I think we had a, an assembly-wide um, discussion or, or seminar on the direction of the PCA. I think that was the next morning, um, and uh, which was which was informative as well. I kind of give you an idea of where folks are in terms of what their thought is, is what is the mission of, well, hopefully you all have the same mission of the church, which is a great commission, uh, but maybe ways that that's emphasized or applied in different areas throughout the PCA, and trying to come up with a united idea of that as we move forward uh, in our history. There is a point from that, because I wasn't there to observe it, but I read the transcript later. And, um, and Brian Habig made a great point, and that is that though we are a church, and in that sense a very special society um, in a spiritual body, yet we are also an organization, and we should be competent to apply organizational principles uh, that are revealed to us by the light of nature and revealed in Scripture uh, to the fact that we are an organization. And his main point was that organizations, in order to survive and in order to thrive, need to have a culture of trust and trusting of one another. And I think that was a, really his burden in his talk, um, um, one, of our, one of our, again, presbyters here in Calvary. And, and I want to echo that. And I think that in the PCA, perhaps there is, um, perhaps there is a deficit, a trust deficit, and, and we need to take steps in terms of how to build up mutual trust. And of course, there are different positions on how that can be done. But uh, I just wanted to put that in there. Again, my words, not Dr. Cathcart's. This is just Zach talking. <laughs> I, w- I would echo that, and, and I hope and pray that some of the decisions that were made at this General Assembly uh, with some healthier majorities um, would, would give us that at least some building blocks to, to rebuild some of that trust. As we, as we gathered, one of the big things that we did early on was the Review of Presbytery Records Report, which uh, we have an intimate um, Relationship, relationship with, with? <laughs> yes. Uh, I've served on RPR uh, and, and actually couldn't do it this year because we had a family vacation and our, our presbyter, Dan Dodd, stepped in and did a marvelous job. MVP. Yeah, exactly. And we, we can talk more about that yeah, maybe we'll later. Get that, yeah, we'll get to yeah. that at the end. 
And, and then, you know, uh, after after that report, then we had the different uh, permanent committees reporting and committee commissioners reports, um, which is always a highlight to see how the work of the church is moving forward um, in, a, in a broad sense. So that's always a good thing to see the trajectory of the different um, ministries that, that we support, uh, which, is, which is great. Um, and then afterwards, some of the big things that, that we do, the nominations report when we elect folks to the permanent committees is always a big thing, uh, as well as the Overtures Committee report, which is what everyone's kind of waiting for. Uh, and because we have a, a, a large Overtures Committee, which is made up of potentially two uh, elders from each presbytery, uh, they are able to go through the Overtures, uh, make uh, kind of give us the idea of which ones we want to discuss, focus on, perfect them, and then bring them to the floor of the assembly. So that's, that's, what, that's kind of the main event, as it were, along with the other, other things that are going on in the assembly. As I understand it, overtures are motions put before the assembly or brought before the assembly, typically by presbyteries. Um, that, that, is, that is the best way for them to come through and to get airtime, as it were. And most of those overtures are then deliberated upon in the overtures committee, but some of them get farmed out to other committees, particularly M&A, uh, whenever we get got to redraw boundaries of presbyteries. And then MTW this year had a very important one. We'll get into that as well. But you're right. The, the heat of the conversation, of the discussion, is typically in overtures, which ironically enough is saved uh, toward the end of the assembly. But we had two ad interim study committees reporting this year. Um, ad interim study committees are, are usually birthed out of overtures, uh, from presbyteries, and um, the assembly has to approve them, and then the moderator in a given year um, appoints members to them. And we had two this year. One was the Ad Interim Committee on Human Sexuality, and the other one was the Ad Interim Committee on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. So both hot topics in uh, regarding ethics, but in human sexuality also quite a bit of um, discussion of what is, not even necessarily what should be, but just what is based on scriptural teaching. Both of these committees addressed the assembly this year. The The first one, the Ad Interim Committee on Human Sexuality, actually just basically gave a summary report. We've, we've had their report uh, for the last 13 months, well, May since May 2020 up till June 2021, and so we received a video report from Tim Keller and Kevin DeYoung, who are both on that committee, and I, I don't really think this is the time or place to dive into all the details of that. There's We could have a whole podcast episode just on that report. But suffice it to say that the, their work was received with thanks and, um, and, the, and the committee was dissolved, their work having been completed. The second one, however, um, it wants more time for their work. And so uh, petitioned the assembly to grant an extension of one year to continue its work on, on preparing a helpful report to um, to encourage faithfulness and wisdom in matters of pastoral uh, care for those experiencing domestic violence and sexual assault. And the assembly approved that, and I think that the, the anticipated cost has already been uh, pledged as a special gift from a, a donor anyway. And so we, we'll get the final report from them, Lord willing, at our next assembly in Birmingham next June. Um, and so that that's really it. And then I guess I'll, I'll jump into overtures a little bit here. There were overtures, I think, for four study committees. 
but all of them were denied. So all of them were answered in the negative. So we didn't erect a new study committee. We just have the one going on right now at the, at the GA level. Now, there were a number of interesting developments that took place at this year's GA. As we think about the overtures, and the most substantive developments typically come out of that committee, as you've already said. So let's consider some of those. Uh, first, we had three overtures, two from this assembly, and one that carried over from the 47th GA that had to do with, quote, line authority, end quote, leadership in mission to the world. Dr. Cathcart, what was the issue at stake in these overtures, and what was the outcome within the MTW report? As I understand it, uh, some of the MTW missionaries were concerned, especially the, the, the ones who were teaching and ruling elders, that uh, folks who were non-ordained had line authority over logistical and financial concerns uh, over church plants and other missions initiatives, and that seems to be violating our principle of church governance through church courts and through uh, that, that would flow from elders uh, oversight to other elders rather than um, folks who were non-ordained having that type of authority over them, over the spiritual work that they were called to do. I believe one of the arguments that Dr. Kim made, he's the coordinator for MTW, is that this authority is not spiritual in nature because it's just administrative or logistical. How was that statement answered from the floor? In terms of the, the vote was that, that they should not have the line authority uh, over them. So that, that, was, that was the outcome of it. Um, so I think the assembly said uh, even, even that would be uh, demonstrating a level of authority that Scripture would not give to folks who were not ordained over ordained folks. Yes, even the logistics yes. and the administration and um, the, the distribution of goods, so to speak, kind of the, the political economic things within a society, if it's within the church, is within a spiritual society and um, bears spiritual import. And so the exercise of authority in that context is spiritual authority. I think it was ruling elder Matt Fender from James River Presbytery who got up, and, and I'll, I'll, I just it's burned into my memory because it was so memorable. He said, all authority exercised in the church is ecclesiastical authority. And, and, and I think that argument carried the day. Um, there was another uh, statement that Dr. Kim made regarding setting a bad precedent if the assembly were to direct NTW and, and how it should run its right. operations as an agency. Right. And I believe that uh, Dr. David Coffin got up and said, sir, this is our job as the assembly is to provide oversight and direction to you. Your job is to implement our directions. And um, so those overtures were, uh, though MTW uh, recommended that, uh, so the permanent committee recommended we answer them in the negative. The committee of commissioners made up of commissioners to this assembly, which is unique every year, um, urged the um, urged the assembly to answer them in the affirmative, and they were answered in the affirmative by a fairly wide margin. I don't have the vote record in, in front of me, uh, but that will be published in the minutes when they're made available. And so there's that. Line authority is uh, reserved for those who are in ordained leadership in the PCA, even line authority in our foreign missions agency. Um, I, I think that was a, a good outcome. And, and, but at the same time, I'm sympathetic to MTW, which now has to figure out yes. how, to, how to implement to that change. And yep. I'm, I'm praying for Dr. Mm -hmm. Kim. I'm praying for the leadership at MTW. One of the, one of the trends, actually, I, I do want to mention this. On a positive note with MTW, they're, they've set up regional um, coordinating stations, so to speak. So rather than everything being funneled through Lawrenceville, they now have uh, offices in the Northeast, the Southeast, 
the southwest and the Pacific Coast, I think, and maybe or maybe the Midwest. They they have several regional offices which have um, area coordinators to mobilize churches and to serve the courts of the church in their time zones, at least. Right. Uh, with mobilizing folks into the mission field. I think that's a great trend, um, a decentralization in order to engage more effectively. Again, in the age of electronic communication, there's really nothing keeping us from doing that effectively. So I want to commend MTW for that move uh, as they try to draw closer to presbyteries in the work of the church. Yeah, we've had a a visit from our southeastern gentleman not too long ago at our presbytery meeting, and that's very encouraging. Yeah, I remember that. That, Yeah, that was very encouraging. Yep. We had two overtures that really captured the the attention and imaginations of many in the assembly across the spectrum. Overtures 23 from Gulf Coast Presbytery and 37 from Eastern Pennsylvania Presbytery. They're understood, rightly I think, to have been drafted to address perceived confusion in the PCA over matters of human sexuality and the qualifications of men pursuing ordination in the denomination. Can you briefly explain to us the implications or ramifications of the Assembly's overwhelming support of these overtures as they were amended by the Overtures Committee and brought to the floor, and what will happen if they pass the presbyteries by a two-thirds majority and the next Assembly by a simple majority? Mm-hmm. I would say in terms of the ramifications, the, the, the one big picture I would take away from it is that our General Assembly spoke with clarity and with unity about an issue or a set of issues that, that need that greatly in our culture and that needs it in our church. Uh, and so I think that's probably the number one takeaway, I would say, is that we spoke with biblical truth and we, and we did it together um, in terms of, of how we would approach men who were coming to be ordained as uh, teaching elders, ruling elders, or deacons in, in the PCA. Um, I, I think the first overture, uh, Overture 23, uh, does a really good job of framing who ought to be ordained, what are the qualifications uh, of, of a man uh, in terms of, of these issues, uh, particularly on the issue of identity. Um, there seemed to be a lot more disagreement about this particular uh, idea of identity, and just kind of reading the overture a little bit, those who profess an identity, such as but not limited to gay Christians, same-sex attracted Christian, homosexual Christian, or like terms, that undermine or con- contradicts our identity as new creations in Christ, either by denying the sinfulness of fallen desires, uh, or by denying the reality and hope of progressive sanctification, and or by failing to pursue spirit-empowered victory over their sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions, are not qualified for ordained office. So that one does a really good job of framing, uh, on, the, on this particular issue, who is qualified and who is not qualified for office. The other overture does a really good job of making sure that we're checking for those things specifically as we move through the mechanism uh, to ordain uh, and to examine men. Um, and having served on the Candidates Committee uh, of Presbytery and the Examinations Committee, we do a really good job of that element in the candidates process, or at least we did when I was serving on that. Uh, probably not as good a job when we get to the ordination transfer licensure because we're so adamant to get forward with uh, the theological examination, the biblical examination, church history, government, those sorts of things that uh, that can be left to the side a little bit and assumed. Um, so I, w- one of the things that I was, I guess I watched the, uh, the episode that was uh, given by uh, Dominic Aquila and Fred Greco uh, discussing these things. And, and one of the points that was made that I think very well, and is if you just read through uh, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, 
Now, there's very little about teaching, you know, in terms of the qualifications for elder. I mean, they're there, obviously, and, and that's huge uh, because that is our number one responsibility uh, as, as pastors. But, but so much uh, is, is about character. And uh, we probably short shrift uh, the character examinations of men uh, when they come. So uh, I like the Overture 30 through 7 because it's broader than just uh, the issue of same-sex attraction or, or or gay identity or anything like that, but it gets into some other uh, potential uh, sins that, that are notorious and that would wreck a man's ministry. I'm not sure the word pride is in there. Maybe we should put that one in as well, because that one uh, may may come before all the others. Um, but uh, but but I think this th- these these both were, were crafted very well. I love the the majorities. You know, uh, the first one was passed 1438 to 417 on the floor of the assembly. That's in the PCA. You can't even get that many people to agree on. You know, whether the lights what, are on. Yeah, or exactly, off. exactly. <laughs> uh, um, what what coffee you want, or uh, what's your beverage of choice, or whatever. But and the other one was eleven thirty to six ninety two. Another resounding uh, majority that that one did have a minority report and was a little bit of, of a closer vote and probably engendered a little bit more debate. Uh, but but I'm very thankful again that that we have spoken clearly on these issues. Uh, you know, and I don't want to jump to the end because yeah, you know to say kind of what was my greatest takeaway of the assembly but as a pastor um it's very encouraging here uh, to see that we can preach the whole gospel to the whole man and the whole woman uh, not only justification but also sanctification putting sin to death and also having the hope of glory not only uh in the new heavens and the new earth but that we are being changed from one degree of glory to another um and that that we can press upon folks that um there's hope in the gospel uh, that you're not, you don't have to remain in an identity or remain in, in sin, but instead, uh, not that there's going to be perfection in this life. No one expects that. But my 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 biggest concern pastorally is that we were uh, taking away the power of the Holy Spirit from people who desperately need it. Um, now I, that doesn't mean that we don't uh, have compassion and that we're not very careful and that we're um, that we're very loving in the way that we bring people along. Uh, but we don't want to, and we don't want to promise like you're going to have complete and total victory, you know, in, in this life over sin. No, no one's saying that. Uh, but what we what do you want to offer these these folks hope uh, that that you that God is working in your life that um, that you can work out your salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in you, to, willing to work according to His good pleasure. Um, so that's enough. I was probably on that, but uh, obviously it's something that I'm passionate about because we deal with folks who are in these situations and we want them to have the hope of the gospel, not a false hope, but a true hope in Christ. And I just don't want us to, to think that we need to, to be named by our sins. We need to name our sins, confess them, repent of them, and know that there is hope. Our constitutions as creatures made in God's image, though God is unchanging, our constitutions are not unchanging. They are mutable. And in a Genesis 1 context, Genesis 2 context, that means that we were liable to fall from grace, from that perfection in which we were created. In a Genesis 3 context and forward, which is where we live now, it means that we can fall into further depths of sin, being born into sin with sinful natures, or we can be renovated. We can be revived, we can be regenerated, renewed, we can be reconstituted as righteous in the sight of God and sanctified progressively in this life. And though we don't want to be presumptuous and triumphalistic and have an over-realized eschatology and every other fancy theological term we could slap on it and say, you will have total victory in this life, 
We can't make that promise. We can say you will have total victory, and God is going to incrementally draw you nearer to it through your experiences in this life and by the power of the Holy Spirit united to the proclamation of the word. And you're right, as a pastor, if we can't say that, or if that's somehow blanketed by this sense that I'm born with a certain sin nature or something of sin that is unchangeable, then our work is futile and in vain. And, and, and that's why I agree with you, Dr. Cathcart, that the, the majorities that pass to these two overtures and what I hope we will see is the presbyteries work through them and the next GA uh, then votes on them again. And I hope these pass and our BCO is, is amended rightfully. Um, as a pastor, that's greatly encouraging. And if they don't pass, it will be a real discouragement, but we press on in hope because the way God works with people, he works with denominations too, and he can incrementally bring us closer to the good, the true, and the beautiful as it is revealed in Jesus Christ. So um, there's that, again, a subject that could uh, warrant a whole podcast episode, but there was some heated discussion towards the end of Overtures, and maybe it was a bit unexpected by some um, by some. Uh, Commissioners, and this he discussion was over a proposed statement condemning anti-Asian racism in American culture. And what was surprising about it was uh, those who rose to speak against the motion were themselves uh, Korean American commissioners who said, "Why should we? Uh, why should we highlight just this expression of racism? We should have a, a, a more general statement that encompasses all forms of racism." Uh, can you summarize for us the outcome of the discussion? Uh, understanding it was late on Thursday night, neither of us are going to remember all the all the permutations of, of things. But at the end of the day, what did we as an assembly adopt? As far as I remember, we adopted the recommendation of the Overtures Committee, which was to answer it in reference to uh, General Assembly Forty Six, a statement on racial and ethnic discrimination or, or and re re reconciliation. reconciliation. Yeah, excuse me. Yeah, that was right. Um, and also to uh, stand with our brothers who felt pain and violence this past year, our Asian brothers uh, who had who had dealt with with some things that that were very public in terms of of violence on Asian Americans. Um, and so I think that was what the, uh, the the assembly did. I think the concern was that we didn't do it as strongly as we could have. Um, so they they wanted a, a, a further repudiation. Um, what I would say is. I do hurt for for folks who've heard comments in the hall, or if, if other brothers have made uh, comments. That's that's terrible, you know. I mean, I, and I, I, I lament that, and and uh, we all need to check our own hearts for our prejudices, um, and they exist. You know, I think it's, it's foolish for us not to think that they don't exist, and we need to repent of them. Um, yeah. At the same time, my my concern is, though I know that the the impetus for that is unity. Um, what I, what I don't want us to do is is to uh, always be focusing on what divides us rather than what unites us. And so that's, that's a, I think that's another concern maybe by, by others in the assembly too, that, that we, 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 it's right for us to, to repent of these things and to, and to focus on them. Uh, we shouldn't take our focus off that we are, we are united in Christ. We, there is no more slave or free Jew or Greek. Uh, we are, we are one in Christ. Uh, and, and we praise God uh, for the blood of Christ who brings us together. The, the one, the two who are once separated, uh, we are one in Christ. And I think that was reflected in the statement which the Overtures Committee brought as right. a recommendation to the floor, and which which the Assembly overwhelmingly adopted. 
and um, and I was pleased in it. Um, and and I thank God for our our Korean American brothers and the close fellowship we have, even within the PCA, but certainly even in our fraternal relations with Korean churches back in South Korea and the blessing they've been to us. I think it was. It was at the 47th GA that uh, one of the delegates from a large Korean Presbyterian um, fraternal denomination got up and and didn't chastise, didn't rebuke, but reproved and encouraged us, exhorted us to be faithful in matters of biblical sexuality because all over the world, the rest of the church is watching America and thinking, what is going on? And, and calling out the PCA in particular to stand fast, that was so encouraging. And, and I'm thankful for those different perspectives that kind of wake us up to our own sins uh, when, when, we can, when we've fallen asleep to, to use, you know, maybe to flirt with danger there and using <laughs> that language. All right, review of Presbytery Records. You mentioned we have a close relationship as a presbytery <laughs> with this particular <laughs> yeah. <laughs> committee of the sure. General Assembly. Sure. And it had an issue that hit close to home uh, for us. The issue concerned whether or not a presbytery may forbid a man from teaching a stated difference that the presbytery accepted is not out of accord with any fundamental of our system of doctrine. Background is Calvary Presbytery in examining a man uh, who has stated differences to the confession of faith, ask a number of questions. First, do you have any stated differences? And then once they're presented, we ask, is this, what kind of difference is this? Is this a scruple or exception? If it's an exception, we then ask, is it um, out of accord or not out of accord with any fundamental of our system of doctrine? If it is ruled out of accord with a fundamental, then that man's not ordainable. But if we rule it as not out of accord with any fundamental of our system of doctrine, we then say on the basis of good faith subscription that he may serve in our bounds. However, we have a Calvary statement that we give for certain of those exceptions, um, like whether or not uh, a Roman Catholic and a Protestant can get married, for example, (laughs) that kind of exception. Um, We have a statement that says, you may hold this, privately, but you may not teach it publicly. And so in Calvary Presbytery, sometimes we direct the, uh, the ordinand in that way, and sometimes we do not. And we say, you may teach this, but you must always teach it alongside of the confessional position, explaining the biblical background for both. Um, and so the question is, can a presbytery issue a statement like we do saying, you may hold this, you may not teach it, even, even if you teach it alongside of our, of our stated position, you still can't teach it. Um, can you walk us through the exact situation, though, and 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 how this how this panned out? I mean, you even rose to speak at the mic about it. Yeah, so, I, I'll do my best. It, it's just sort of personal history. It, <laughs> yeah, I know. As it, recording clerk, you've yeah, been dealing with this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and uh, I may may f- have be fuzzy on a couple details, but the the big thing is, you know, as as you said, Zach, in 2017 was the first time we were cited for this. Our records it as, goes back four years. It goes back four years. So the RPR meets every May, typically and goes through all the records of all 88 presbyteries. I've served on it for two years. This year I, did, I got a, a, a time off, but uh, Dr. Taylor always calls it Presbyterian Purgatory, and that's a mild description of it. I'm just kidding. I, I've never had a bigger migraine headache than the first day I was there, but, but the Lord is good. We got through it. But uh, the, the big thing, uh, so as, as they're going through, one of the things they take we take close look at is uh, how examinations were were carried out because that's one of the primary 
uh, objectives of, of, uh, and duties of a presbytery. And uh, so we were cited for, uh, with an exception of substance, there are sex, exceptions of form, which would be just something kind of small that we've forgotten, but with, with an exception of substance, it's something that, that, that needs to be corrected. Um, or at least in the in the view of the RPR and potentially the General Assembly, and so they they said that what we what we did in restricting a man's teaching it was a larger Catechism 109 in this case, uh, dealing with images of Christ, dealing with images of Christ uh, was not allowed because it violated preliminary principle one of the BCO, which speaks about liberty of conscience that God alone is Lord of the conscience and that we can't bind a man's conscience uh, to something that is not scriptural. Um, so that that was the idea, uh, and then also that it violated good faith subscription. Um, and so our response the next year was it does not violate preliminary principle one um, because uh, it is in harmony with one and two. Uh, preliminary principle two tells us that that we are allowed to we are to set the limits of our own membership, um, and uh, so therefore we can't violate. It, it actually it, it specifically says in preliminary principle two that we're not violating a man's conscience by not allowing him in. So to me, it was really a simple argument. Um, and then also that it doesn't violate uh, current PCA polity and because there's nothing in the Book of Church Order that tells us not to restrict teaching. Um, and th- this was something that was debated. Our, our great uh, MVP, Dan Dodds, brought up some extra arguments when he did his minority report this last time. And in, in, in the debates leading up to good faith subscription, that this was assumed would, it would happen. Uh, he quoted uh, Dr. Chapel in, in one of his articles, uh, as well as some other historical uh, things that this was, we, we assumed we were always a good faith subscription denomination. We always allowed this to happen. Because um, one of the arguments is, hey, this, you, you're, you're trying to do this. You did it before a good faith subscription, but it doesn't hold now. Uh, but we were able to prove historically that this was the practice, and it was assumed that this is where we were already. Um, so anyway, great arguments by, by Dan, um, but we were turned down, uh, <laughs> not once, not twice, but three times. And the third time, they wanted to kick it up to SJC, the Standing Judicial Commission, for a final ruling. It was never ugly or anything like that. It was just, you know, hey, we're at loggerheads here. You guys keep giving us the same response. You've done it two more times, and uh, we're tired of that. So let's just clear it up by sending it to the SJC. Let them rule on it, and we'll move on. So at this assembly, uh, Dan brought a minority report uh, that said that, that Calvary's uh, uh, explanations for the uh, exceptions of substance ought to be approved and there should be no further action. Um, after giving a masterful speech, uh, the assembly actually uh, approved the minority report. And so this was the first time. So this has been three years in a row. Uh, honestly, I, I did have to make an amendment at the end because they had left out one of our uh, times, so I wanted to make sure that the whole deck was cleared. And honestly, I, I was sitting there thinking, eh, I'm not going to have to do this because there's no way this is going to win. Um, but it did, and so uh, and so I jumped up and, and made my little speech about you know first time caller, long time listener. And honestly, I've been saving that one for a while. Uh, I didn't know I'd use it on such a technical kind of argument. I thought it may be something really interesting like pedo communion or I don't know, I was kind of or something worship oriented. So that's kind of my background. But but I was glad to, to be able to do it and. And it didn't bomb too badly, but but I'm thankful. And then other presbyteries were able to do the same thing to clear the deck for their uh, their exceptions of substance on a similar thing. I think Northwest Georgia, Northwest Georgia, and mm-hmm. maybe Mississippi Valley as I think well. So yeah, and uh, there was one other presbytery we tried to contact real quickly to make sure they did it, but they for, they didn't. They dropped the ball, but they can do it next time. They can use our case's precedent, I suppose. That's right. Yeah. So so yeah, it's been a long journey, uh, four years, and we're very thankful that the assembly. 
uh, upheld the position. We do think it is in concert with with good faith subscription. Um, and, and I think at our presbytery, we always need to make sure that we're using it judiciously, that we're not uh, using it in a, in a, when we don't have to, but when, when it's necessary. Um, so I'm very thankful that, that, that um, uh, we have the debt cleared of these exceptions of substance and that we're allowed to continue with the practice of restricting teaching for the purity and the peace of the church. Thank you for breaking that down for us. Um, it's a complex issue. It gets into the weeds on polity, but it's really important. It's consumed a lot of energy and a lot of time, and it's caused no little disruption in our own presbytery as we've debated how best to respond to RPR over the past four years. Now, the commissioners also received annual progress reports from the permanent committees and agencies of the church, the administrative committee, covenant college, discipleship ministries, Covenant Seminary, Mission to North America, Mission to the World, which we talked about, PCA Foundation, PCA Retirement Benefits Incorporated, um, Reformed University Fellowship, and Ridge Haven Conference Center. Um, did anything stick out to you from their reports? Well, I love Ridge Haven, so I always love to hear that report. My yeah, children are, are big fans, and they've grown up going to Ridge Haven. Uh, probably the thing that stuck out to me was the amount of turnover we had have had in uh, in the, the leadership of, of these groups in the last six years or so, five years, and even even this year. Uh, so it's exciting. We have uh, one of our own, uh, Will Huss, uh, ruling elder from Clemson Prez, as the as the head of RUF now. So that's an exciting exciting thing. Um, and and I think that's probably something we need to pray for as as this new leadership takes hold, um, that they'll continue to. To, to uphold the, the values of the denomination, and I think they will. And, and it's, it's, we have a new president at Covenant Seminary, uh, Dr. Gibbs, so we're looking forward to that as well. Who loves breakfast burritos. <laughs> Obviously so. Yes, yes, yes. That was one of the funnier moments of assembly. If um, For those who, didn't, who weren't watching the live stream or who weren't there, when um, uh, Dr. Gibbs stood up to uh, make his introductory speech uh, during the Covenant Seminary report, it happened to be that his time ran out in the middle of a statement about how much he loves breakfast burritos, something to do with San Antonio and breakfast burritos. Dr. Taylor said, sir, your time has expired. <laughs> and so um, Dr. Gibbs had to step out at, at the breakfast burrito point, and I'll never forget that. I think M&A also um, maybe had some leadership changes. Yep. Dr. Erwin mm -hmm. Ince taking mm -hmm. up more That's of a right. leadership role with M&A. Um, so that, that, that'll be interesting. It'll be a very significant role, the church planting organ of the, of the PCA at the national level. It runs the uh, assessment center, which presbyteries depend on to justify and to screen candidates, um, and then also makes some national strategy for parachute plants and church extension. Now, what was the single—you you kind of told us what the single most encouraging takeaway from GA was for you. And that was this this pastoral concern you had over overtures twenty three and thirty seven, and just really feeling like uh, you know our pastoral care and our our mandate for pastoral care is vindicated. But um, is there anything else you want to mention, or anything we ought to be alarmed or concerned about? Any just any final thoughts? You get the last word, <laughs> first time caller, last yeah. word. Here you go. Well, uh, I don't know how profound this will be, but but I think what, one of the things I I'm encouraged by was the attendance, uh, the representation from, I think, a lot of smaller churches. And being a small church pastor, that's really heartening to see because I think we're, I, I mean, whatever, we're sort of overlooked in the whole thing, even though it's funny because you know, we probably make up you know the majority of the folks, and, and I hate, I'm not statistically sure of that. but I think the average 
size of a PCA congregation is a, is around one one hundred to two hundred members, right. maybe even right. less than that. I don't know, sure. but I, sure. I think the vast majority of our congregations, anyway, are yeah. are small, yeah. rural, or mm-hmm. suburban churches. Yeah, yeah. So, so seeing that was very encouraging. Um, meeting folks who had not been to General Assembly before, you know, seeing seeing a lot of new uh, new commissioners, that was really really a good thing. Um, and I think it's reflected in the in the votes. Um, Probably in terms of alarm, and and I, I want to be careful when I say this. A division in terms of the mission of the church, uh, maybe it's subtle, maybe it's not so subtle, uh, but, but the idea of you know, it, is our mission, the Great Commission, making disciples through the proclamation of the gospel. Um, is it that plus cultural transformation? Um, and and obviously, you know, even as as Reformed Christians, we understand the heritage that we have and, and what happened uh, after uh, Luther was in uh, Wittenberg and Calvin in Geneva, and, uh, and we, there was lots of cultural transformation that happened. Um, but it was a byproduct was a, was of a, the church pursuing its narrow mission, and then Christians being equipped by the church there, going out and pursuing a broader Christian mission, which is distinct from the church's mission as such. That, that's exactly that, well said. You know, I, I probably would leave it there other than saying, you know, that, that let's make sure we lead with our narrow mission. Let's make sure we're leading with the, pro, the full proclamation, the whole counsel of God. If we're doing that, then, then the Lord is going to use that to equip our, our individual members uh, to go out and transform the culture rather than uh, responding and reacting always uh, to what the culture uh, the, the issues of the day. And, and I guess that's what I'm most concerned with. It just feels like there's a little bit of identity politics going on in our in our agenda as the PCA. I think you may be right. And when I, when I look at 20th century American Presbyterian history and I consider um, just the, almost the, the squandering of great potential in, in the parts of men like um, Carl McIntyre, for example, who with all the best intentions of the world got up on the soapbox and transformed his pulpit into a political platform for you know, railing against communism or uh, railing against alcohol or whatever. And um, and then you see the the effects of that. You know, whatever he did pursue towards the end of his life has has all but fizzled out in South Jersey. And there's barely any Reformed Presbyterian presence. In fact. I'm in touch with men in South Jersey, uh, praying for and, and hoping to even supply candidates for church plants um, down the road, and because there's such an opportunity there now, since when Carl McIntyre was there, and I'm just using him as one illustrative example, when he was there, he squandered the opportunity he had on his political hobby horses, and and I think there are, uh, there is a risk, a danger on the right and the left, and perhaps now it's it's more on the left. Um, because that's more popular and a bit easier to get an audience for than, than the right. Um, but a, a, a risk, a danger as a pastor, as a man with influence in a group of people and with a platform to be a public speaker to get into political hobby horses and to reconstrue the mission of the church uh, in, in those terms. And it's very destructive to our witness and it's destructive to the vitality of the church. The story of the mainline denominations is, is really the story of that slow or fast destruction over a hundred years. Anyway, Dr. Cathcart, on that note, (laughs) we, we look forward to a, a grand and glorious future for the PCA and for confessional churches, reformed churches, wherever they may be found, holding fast to scripture's teaching, heralding forth the word of truth, and in full dependence on the Holy Spirit 
But thank you for your time today. It was really great to have you here. Likewise. Thank you, Zach. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. donate For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.